Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. So Alicia, today's case actually came from a recommendation from you. Really? Yeah. Do you remember? Probably not. (laughs) That's true. There was an author you really wanted to talk to about another case, and you said, hey, you should read one of her newer books. Correct. I looked it up online and was super excited because, of course, it takes place in my hometown. That's right. It's all coming back to me now. Like like Celine, Celine Dion. Dion. <laughs> so listeners may actually recognize Corvallis as the town where Jerry Bruto spent his late teen years, or where Brooke Wilberger was abducted from the parking lot of her sister's apartment, or where Ted Bundy cruised through and abducted a college student. Or maybe you don't recall any of that and you just remember it as the town I won't stop referring to because that's where I grew up. I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic. My 20-year reunion is coming up this summer and of course it's going to be canceled because of our current pandemic. So may as well talk about it, talk about the city again, the uh, old heart of the valley as we call it. Those of you who already listened to our episode, Bless Our Anne, know that we had a chance to sit down and chat with Rebecca Morris, a New York Times bestselling author. Rebecca lives in Seattle, but she's actually from Corvallis. She went to high school there in the 1960s. And fun fact, not only did we both go to the same high school, we went to the same middle school, although I think hers was called a junior high at the time. And not only that, her best friend's family owned a bar that my stepdad's family bought from them. So it's a very small, Small true crime world. world. True crime world. (laughs) Rebecca has written some fantastic true crime books. And in her book, A Murder in My Hometown, released in 2018, she details how the idyllic college town of Corvallis was disrupted by the chaos of the late 1960s. From Vietnam to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., America was living in turmoil. There, in that small, pristine town nestled in the Willamette Valley, tragedy would fall even closer to home with the murder of her fellow classmate. All of this impacted her and her classmates' lives greatly, so she decided to write about it. Decades later, we're still talking about the murder in my hometown, a case that has never been closed, today's case, the murder of Richard Kitchell. On Friday, October 20th, 1967, A 100-word mention was posted in the Gazette Times, the local paper in Corvallis. In the post, it detailed that Richard Kitchell, a 17-year-old high school student, was missing. Dick, as his friends called him, was due in court for a traffic violation, but he never showed up. He had been missing for nine days, and his parents were asking for anyone who knew something to come forward and reach out to them. Authorities assumed he was scared to go to court, knowing the very serious nature of the accident he caused, but mere days later... Dick's body was discovered, face down, floating in the Willamette River. He had been murdered. While the last night of his life was shared with many of his friends, only one person really knows exactly how that night ended. For over 50 years, the mystery around who that person is was never officially solved. 
Dick Kitchell was born on June 27, 1950, to parents Ralph and Joan Kitchell. At a young age, his parents divorced, remarried, and moved into separate states. Dick found himself bouncing between two parents' lives. In one life, he had his mother, Joan, a few different stepdads over the years in Olympia, Washington, and then in his other life, he had his father, Ralph, his stepmother, Sylvia, and his stepbrother, Roger. While he ping-ponged between homes, Dick's childhood was full of the American staples you would expect a young man in the 50s to have. He was part of the Cub Scouts. He even played Little League Baseball on a team called the Crocs, short for the Crocodiles. His father owned a shoe repair store, Kitchell Shoes, in the bustling downtown of Corvallis. Dick was the kind of kid who was outgoing and friendly, a little guy everyone liked. It seemed to be the makings of a real American dream, but behind closed doors, Dick's life was far from perfect. As Dick got older, things at home grew harder, it was becoming more apparent that he was from the wrong side of the tracks, the south side of Corvallis, as we called it in my time, Southtown. It was known for being the part of town where you would find trailer parks, smaller homes, and it might be perceived to be a little bit more low income than other areas of the city. This is definitely the type of thing kids start to notice as they get older. With age, Dick started getting into more and more fights with his father, a man who was known for being a drunk. His stepbrother, Roger, was also known to have a temper and a very bad reputation at school. Dean Baudreau was one of Dick's closest friends. Later in life, after it was too late for Dick, Dean described how Dick's childhood was very far from normal. He basically raised himself, got into frequent fights at school, out in the town with his father, and he also insinuated that his father was abusing him at home. By the time he was a teenager, Dick created a bit of a reputation for himself. Described as cute, albeit a bit on the small size, at 5'2 and 125 pounds, everyone knew him. Sure, he was known to get really drunk and get into fights, but he was also well known at his local haunt, Seton's Barbecue. Not only would he start fights, but he was commonly breaking them up. He was overall known to be friendly and likable, and due to his notoriety and frequent visits, they dubbed him the Mayor of Seton's. Dick wasn't lacking for dates either. In his senior year, he was dating two girls. The first was Judy Appleman, a junior and cheerleader who was really aiming for the college resume stars as part of the rally committee, student council, the fire squad. Judy hadn't really seen the drunken, feisty side of Dick. They hadn't even held hands or kissed yet, so I think he was likely on his best behavior around her. The other young lady he dated was Diana Eddins, a girl who happened to see the darker side of Dick. On their first date, they hung out at Seton's and fooled around a little bit in Dick's baby blue 1955 Chevy. Unlike Judy, Diana did hear the rumors of Dick's fondness for alcohol, but that didn't really bother her. Over the Labor Day weekend in 1967, Dick and Diana planned their second date. They decided to check out a party on the north side of town, and they both drank pretty heavily that night. Later that night, Dick was driving his beloved car when they realized a policeman was following them. Rather than slowing down and pulling the car over, Dick sped up, swerved out of control into the other lane where he ended up taking out a row of mailboxes, trees, and 150 feet of fence. When police confronted him, he tried to resist, but ultimately him and Diana were arrested and taken to the station. The arrest led to the court appointment he was expected to be at on October 20th, the appointment he never arrived at. On Saturday, October 21st, the day after the court date, two boys were fishing at the Riverview Marina when they noticed a body floating by. 
One of the boys described trying to reach out to grab the body. He realized what he was doing, and then he ran to get help. Detective Jim Montgomery was there when they finally pulled the body out of the river. While the cold temperature had slowed decomposition, the time in the water was unforgiving. Dick's body was bloated, black, and covered in moss. He was taken to the local funeral home, McHenry's, just a few blocks away, and it was noted that he was dressed in jeans, a gray Oregon State t-shirt, and cowboy boots. While he had no wallet, in his pocket he had two nickels, two pennies, a brass key, and a white handkerchief. His father and stepmother were asked to come identify the body, and they quickly confirmed that it was Dick. And before leaving, one of them asked, where was his jacket? You see, besides his car, he had one other item that he was never seen without, and that was his Pacific Trail tan suede jacket. While it might not be odd that a body floating in the water didn't have all its clothing, there were so many items in his pockets that I think it really was a good question. Like, why would he retain so many things? Yeah, it but wasn't not like his jacket? your clothes were shredded and we don't know where all this stuff is. It's like you were pretty you know, everything seemed to be intact, of course, you would still be wearing a jacket. Right. So it, it could. It could have floated off of him. It could have got snagged or ripped, what have you. But I think everyone took note of, okay, this guy is known for his car, his cowboy boots, and his jacket. These are things he always had. Well, and you would think there'd be a trace of it. If something was destroyed, there'd be, oh, part of a sleeve or other things would have been exactly distraught on him. So it was definitely noted by police. Distraught's not the word I want. Distressed on him. There it is. <laughs> there you go. Dick's autopsy was initiated quickly. It revealed that he had been in the river about 10 days. Now, this lines up to the same amount of time since the last night anyone had seen him. It was obvious that just before his death, he had been in a fight. Both of his hands showed significant bruising around the knuckles. His face showed signs of being hit. Both eyes were bruised, and he had bled from his nose, his mouth, and his ears. There was bruising around his throat, and his larynx had been completely crushed, causing him to suffocate. Now, it didn't appear that this was caused by bare hands, so it was thought that maybe it was the crook of an arm or maybe clothing had been wrapped around his throat. They weren't really sure what caused it. It was also determined that he had died prior to being put in the river because he had no water in his lungs, so he had been dead when he hit the water. One significant downside of Dick having been in the river so long was that it damaged a lot of potential clues on his body. The Willamette River at the time was severely polluted. It was so polluted that it contaminated all of the blood in his body. There was no sample that could have been taken. The, uh, the medical examiner had actually tried to take blood from his heart chamber, and it too was contaminated. Oh my gosh. Not long after Dick's body had been taken to the funeral home, detectives started learning about the last night Dick was ever seen. Ralph and Sylvia knew about a party Dick had been to the day he went missing, so they started naming all of his friends, forming a list of people he would have interacted with. This was a really great place for the police to start, so they decided they wanted to interview friends, family, teachers, neighbors, and even acquaintances. After a number of interviews, a clear picture of October 11th formed. There was a party that night, and it was hosted by Paul and Judy Everts. Now, this was a couple in their early 20s, but they often hosted parties for high school kids. They rented a small house on 14th Street, which is smack dab in Party Central off campus, I myself lived three streets away in a haunted house on 17th Street. <laughs> Story for another time. <laughs> 
Paul had actually graduated a few years earlier, married Judy Seavey when she was a senior in high school. Now, the first thing I thought when I read this was why on earth would a young couple with a baby, mind you, and I don't think it was newborn, but it was definitely under one. Why would they be hosting parties for high schoolers? And Rebecca had had a brief mention in her book that maybe they were making an extra income off of buying beer and providing it to the kids. Right, saying, you know, almost a cover charge or exactly. something. That's like on Lover's Lane, we mentioned that, that there was that gal that hosted those parties. It's, yeah, I think it's very common. Especially in the 60s, man. Things were wild. They were a wild, wild time. Many kids were at the party, and a few of them claim that Dick showed up intoxicated and ready to rumble. He was noted as mouthing off to several people, one of them being Judy, the lady of the house. One witness quotes Dick said to her, get fucked. This, of course, doesn't go over well, and the witness says Paul, her husband, pulled him aside and gave him a talking to and essentially said he would have to leave if he didn't apologize. Dick and Paul return. Um, where he apologizes and then they decide it's fine and the party resumes. However, another witness claims that it was not Paul who got involved with Dick and it was actually a guy named Doug that Dick was fighting with. This witness said that the fight went outside, Dick never came back, but Doug did. Mm. Police were focusing heavily on this party. They were trying to sort out what information was relevant and meaningful and what was being misremembered. Now, it wasn't just the Kitchell parents and police who knew about the local party Dick attended. This was knowledge a lot of people had. But most people seemed content to assume that Dick had made it home from the party and that you wouldn't have to look very far to know who did it, that it was within his own family. The most talked about theory was that Dick had his fun at the party, drinking beer, picking fights, that a friend took him home, and that is where Dick's life ended. Whispers turned to a fight with his father, one that would go too far. Perhaps his father killed his son in a fit of rage and threw the body into the river to cover his tracks. Police had been to the Kitchell home on several occasions to intervene when fights broke out between the two, so this was a very plausible theory. People grew suspicious of Ralph for more than just the violence they were aware of at the home. He waited quite a few days before he had reported his son missing. When detectives asked about this, he was defensive. But looking back at the five days time between when he saw Dick and when he reported him missing, it was actually a long weekend. Ralph mentioned this as part of the reason he had assumed Dick went to the coast with friends, something he did pretty often on three-day weekends. So it So I to him, he was only missing for, for like two, two days. days. Right. Okay. I was going to ask about that. And plus, being that he's an older, you know, even though he's still a teenager, but he's an older Kids white male, mm-hmm. the police aren't going to be worried about that. Exactly. Ralph was also heavily judged for the lack of emotional response regarding the news of his son's death. He wasn't begging police for information or following up with them daily. He didn't burst into tears or post papers all over town seeking information. He did, however, show open hostility towards police. Now, if you ask me, that is an emotional response, right? Absolutely. I mean, people deal with things. If you're in, in denial ways. and in shock, yeah, and you're the people that told me this bad news, and yeah, there's some people get angry, some people get really sad and close down. We just don't know how you're going to react. As to we're experiencing like that. as a world right now, everyone deals with grief differently. That is very true. Now, others suggested that there might be another reason for that hostility towards police. There are rumors that maybe Ralph was an ex-con. 
Now, this would have given him reason to not like police, maybe, but it also could explain okay. why he owned a shoe repair business. Now, back in back in these old days, it used to be really common for prisoners to learn a trade while they were locked up, and shoe repair was one of the things you would learn in prison. Oh, and so, then he came out and started a business. Right. So okay. people thought, well, maybe he was a violent offender already, mm-hmm. learned that trade, had a family, Everyone knows he was a drunk, abused his son. Like, why not point the finger Mm -hmm. at him? It wasn't just the random Corvallis strangers to point the finger at Ralph Kitchell. Dick's former girlfriend, Judy Appleman, who talked, we talked about her briefly. She said she considered Ralph to be one of the main suspects, even quoted as saying, we all thought he had killed his son. But what's interesting is it didn't stop her from going to the shoe repair store. She went and had her shoes dyed for her cheerleading outfit. So it's kind of like, and you think are you just feeding? guy killed your boyfriend? Yeah, are you feeding mm. into the town rumors or did you really think that? Detectives find the stories of Ralph's violence to be of particular interest. So they do keep tabs on him and his wife. So they eventually ask them to take polygraph tests because as we know, polygraphs were huge at this time. Mm-hmm. We know now that you can't judge people too harshly for saying they don't want to take one because they aren't the most reliable things to do. But back then, it was a big tool they were using in investigation. So at the time, of course, they turn it down. Now, they suggested taking one to Ralph. He was like, no, no, thank you. And then they did it again. He seemed a little bit keener to the idea. And then after talking to their lawyer, they agreed. But the the thing was, the polygraph was actually in another town. So you would have had to ridden in the police car 40 minutes to Eugene to take this. So I wouldn't want to do that too. And if he was an ex-con, yeah, I don't want to be in a police right. car. He already has So we can't judge feelings. him for that, yeah. I think. So once they agreed to let him drive himself with his wife and the lawyer was like, yeah, go do this, then they eventually, they eventually go to Eugene and take the test. So what were the results of the test, you asked? I do. What were the results of the test? So Ralph goes first. And before the test begins, he wants to make sure that everyone knows he has high blood pressure. They did take his blood pressure and they found that it was within a reasonable range for the test to be accurate. So they proceed. And when it begins, he's asked, you know, did you see Dick around the time of his death? He says no. They ask, were you being factual with police? He says yes. They ask, do you know who caused his death? He says no. They ask if he caused his death. He said no, et cetera, et cetera. You get the drift. And while they determined he was definitely nervous and he was telling the truth. Okay. So then Sylvia takes it. Same types of questions. She also is truthful. Which, again, it's hard to take that at face value because they were so inconsistent. Yeah. I mean, I just, I get it, I guess. I mean, the whole thing's moot, really. Right. And it, it is the 60s, police in the 60s. I, you know, I don't know. It's a small town, too. I don't yeah. know how often they were dealing with these types of cases. I think there was a case not, not but a month later where another boy of a similar age was found dead. He had been either he jumped or he fell off of a building and they thought maybe it's connected. Oh, okay. I think it was accident. But yeah. So at this time, it was just chaotic in the mm-hmm. world. Everything was crazy. So I guess I can't fault them for being suspicious of... Oh, it totally makes sense that they were. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think one of the biggest questions in this case that police had to have been asking themselves was, did Dick actually make it home that night? We have two likely scenarios at hand. One is he made it home and something happened to him there. 
so that's very plausible that his parents would have or even his brother would have had something to do with it. But the other option is that he never made it home and something would have happened between the party and making it home. And could somebody at the party know something? And did somebody at the party actually have something to do with it? Okay, so let's go back to the night of the party. Dick has been seen inebriated, picking fights. One witness claims Dick fought with a guy named Doug Hamlin. They go outside. Doug comes back. Dick does not. But the question is, when did Doug come back to the party? Doug Hamblin also attended CHS, but for him, it was more of an on and off situation. As of the night of the party, he was 21 years old, divorced, and a father of a two-year-old. And, yeah. And no one really even knows if he did graduate high school. So he's at this party, right? Either in the same group of friends. Police decide they need to talk to Doug because multiple people are now saying that he got in a scuffle with Dick, and that's one of the last people who would have ever talked to him. Doug explains that he was at the party, and post-scuffle, some of the kids wanted to go home, so he offered his services as driver. Now, this was around 12 a.m. The kids pile into his car, one of them being Dick Kitchell, and he drops them off one by one at their homes. So in the end, it's just him and Dick in the car. Now, Doug claims that Dick is really elusive when it comes to where he lives. He won't actually tell him where his house is. So Doug ends up pulling over at 4th and B Street, pulls Dick out of the car, and leaves him to walk home on his own. And he says as he's driving off, he looks in the rear view and he can see Dick walking in the opposite direction. And when he gets back to the party, it's about 1.30 a.m. So that is an hour and a half between taking people from the party that is and sketchy returning. and that's not an alibi Mm-mm, just wait that's that's enough time to dump a body if you ask me so detectives listened to his story and asked doug to participate in a lie detector test they also are quietly assessing his overall appearance they're looking for signs of a fight maybe he's got uh, bruises on his hands or scratch marks on his body but they don't notice anything suspicious before the detectives left this interview, they did inquire with Doug about Dick's tan jacket. So they ask him if he knows anything about where his jacket is, and this is what he says. Oh, yeah, the day after the party, he finds it in his car. Mm. But, of course, it's too small, so he gives it to a nine-year-old, nine-year-old neighbor kid. But he's mm. like, I can get it back. Like, I can get it back for you. Don't worry. But this, of course, is a red flag. Big time. Within days of the discovery of Dick's body, detectives had identified key people they wanted to bring in to take a polygraph. And of course, Doug was one of those people. Doug, Paul Everts, and another partygoer named Marty all went to Eugene to undergo the test. Both Paul and Marty were deemed truthful, and even the newspapers wrote an article about it. Doug, however, had more complex results. He was asked whether he lied to police, concealed information, and had a fight with Dick, if he choked and killed him, if he knew who threw Dick in the river, but all of his results were inconclusive. The examiner, though, wrote, He is a seemingly calm, truthful young man. He wants to be of any possible assistance to the police in determining who caused the victim's death. I find this to be very weird. So he had inconsistent results, yet the examiner is basically saying he's just trying to help? Yeah, that's a weird uh, thing for him to infer and put on his results. That's not his place. It isn't. But needless to say, this didn't clear him. right? Right. So two weeks later, police decide they want to look at his car. Mind you, this is two weeks later. 
So they find that the front passenger door does not open from the outside. They really didn't discover anything else. No blood stains, no evidence. But honestly, who knows what they would have found had they looked immediately. They gave him two weeks with his car, which would have been enough time to clean up. Mm-hmm. Now, the other interesting thing is this broken door. Yeah. I find it interesting because that means that it would be nearly impossible for someone sitting in that seat to get out unless yep. the driver wanted them to. Mm-hmm. And I was Doug, just thinking that when right. you said that. And Doug did say he pulled Dick out of his car mm-hmm. to leave him. So maybe there was some truth in what he was saying, but it wasn't the full truth. Police decide Doug needs another polygraph test. Now, the first test, of course, very inconclusive results. So they think maybe a new examiner, a new test would do the trick. Now, the results of this test concluded that he was deceptive to key questions. And the examiner in this one says he's probably responsible. Oh, those are fighting words mm-hmm. right there. So what next? There wasn't really any evidence, nothing officially connecting Doug to Dick's murder. But let's summarize what we do have. They have this jacket that was in his possession that he gave away. They know Doug had the time between leaving the party and returning that he could have done something to him. Now, there's also motive if you think about the fact that he was fighting with Dick at this party. There is motive there. He could have gotten out of control. It could have been an accident. It could have been on purpose. But anyway, they never went to the grand jury to give them this evidence. So they they didn't officially arrest him. And eventually the case goes cold. And did they ever find the kid that had the coat? Yeah, they, the got, jacket? they did get it back, I believe. Okay. But nothing of significance, obviously. No, nothing. So while some have closed this case in their mind with their resolute opinion that Doug did it, or maybe they even think Ralph did it, in the eyes of the legal system, this was not solved. In 2008, someone new took the case over, Detective Tyson Poole. Now, he brought a fresh pair of eyes and a belief that the car wasn't thoroughly analyzed and it likely would have been the smoking gun in this case. Mm. As Poole went back to the case, he intended to start looking at the evidence and then focus on re-interviewing anyone he could. So when he goes to look at the evidence, he realizes it is uh, a hot mess. He's found untranscribed recorded interviews, missing evidence such as the clothing. Dick's clothing was gone. Oh, my gosh. There was undeveloped film of the crime scene, missing film of the crime scene. Really just the worst possible scenario for a cold case detective. No real evidence. Everyone just threw it in the box and said, well, we're never going to figure that out. Yeah. So Poole described to Rebecca, the author of the book, that, you know, in a normal case, they would swab Dick's neck to look for DNA right away. Of course, that isn't an option in 1967. He was also in the river for 10 days. But he still really wanted to get his hands on the clothing because there was a real chance something Something would have been testable by now. But, I mean, he couldn't get his hands on anything, so it just continued to kind of be cold. He worked on it for years. He he said he would talk to other investigators. Everyone believed that Doug had done it, Mm -hmm. but there was just nothing that could have been done. So he starts interviewing people outside of the investigators. He contacts someone who had submitted a tip about Doug. It was a tip about his ex-wife, Teresa, the mother of his child at the time. She had said that over the years, Doug had confessed to her on multiple occasions, that he admitted to the murder, but when she would press him to go to police, he refused to. So Poole's like, okay, I'm going to go follow up with her, and maybe I can get her testimony. But unfortunately, she had passed away in 1990, so Mm. he couldn't get that information. 
He worked on the Kitchell case for a few years, but, you know, eventually got pulled off onto other cold cases. And then in 2011, it came back on onto him. And by then, Doug had died. So there really was no reason to pursue him. So we'll we'll likely never see official closure on this case. And if you're like me, ending the book in a similar fashion as my last sentence, you're left very disappointed, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we can't help but want justice for this victim. So, I mean, would it help to know that Doug Hamlin passed away after kind of a crappy life? I mean, he drank too much. He had multiple wives who all left him because he hit them. He died without really anyone missing him. I don't know if he even had a relationship with his kid. Mm. So I don't know. But he got to live and Dick did not. So that's- Also, they were both very young, Tracy and Doug. 90s and early 2000s. I mean, that's only 50, 60 years yeah, old. Yeah, but severe alcoholism yeah, will age you, that's for sure. So we had a chance to sit down with Rebecca and talk about Dick and what had happened from her perspective, the perspective of a peer who went to high school with him daily for years. So listen in and get to know a little bit about Rebecca. I'm very excited that with us today is Rebecca Morris, a New York Times bestselling author who wrote A Murder in My Hometown, which happens to be the main source I used for this week's episode. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you very much, Emily. It's good to be here. We're so glad to have you. And I have to say, I feel this odd connection with you, even though I just met you because of our hometown. And the fact that reading your book, I realized you went to my high school, you went to my middle school. Or oh my gosh. Western View. That's right. You're from Corvallis. I'm from too. Corvallis, yes. Uh, well, you went to my high school. That's true. I went to your <laughs> high school. My high school has been torn down, yep. but it's still, there's one Corvallis. That's high school. true. My brother got the brand new build after me. And so I always tell him you went to my high school. <laughs> well, what grade school did you go to? I went to Harding. Okay. You know, a lot of people in this book went to Harding because really? that's where the neighborhood Dick Kitchell had grown up in. Mm hmm. Um, I went to Roosevelt, which isn't there anymore. Right. But what I found in doing this book, and we'll get to it, is that it's who you went to grade school with that's really important, and which also figures in high school reunions. Yes. Much more than who you were in high school. That's with. funny. Mm-hmm. It's my my best friend to this day. We went to Harding together, and we're we have our twenty year reunion coming up this summer. We can't go, of course. They picked a date that we're out oh. of town, but <laughs> we're well, like, you should try to go. It's Fascinating. I would love to, yeah. <laughs> I'm in the uh, alumni page on Facebook a yes, lot for just fun. the general high school alumni, which mm-hmm. is interesting because, you know, we had uh, Jerry Brutus graduated from our high school. Yes. Yep. So I was in there asking around about that. Let's jump right in and talk about this book. So you have a close experience with this. It is your story as much as it is Dick's, which I found very interesting. Uh, as someone from the town, it was nostalgic for me hearing about the places that are no longer there that I remember from my childhood. But I feel like even if you weren't in that hometown, it was a great picturesque college town. Then something massive happens and it affects everyone. It really did. Uh, I was amazed when in about 2015, uh, I put a uh, message on uh, Facebook. I- this is what I was going to ask you. There's a pa- Facebook ca- page called, you know you're from Corvallis. Yes, I'm if. in there. So you're okay. in there, I'm in there. So I'm, okay, so we're frenzies on you know if, if, <laughs> if you're from Corvallis. So I, I put up a posting uh, introducing myself to people I maybe hadn't known and mm-hmm. reintroducing myself and saying that I was looking 
going to look at the case of Dick Kitchell, mm -hmm. who, when we were seniors, he was a classmate of ours, and right. he'd been murdered. And we all remembered it had never been solved right. as far as we, we knew. And I heard from hundreds of people, wow. hundreds of classmates who said they'd never forgotten Dick. They'd never forgotten that he'd been murdered and that it apparently hadn't been solved. Of course, we didn't know the end of the story. Right. Uh, uh, in 1968. Uh, and also, one of the most interesting things I found, I'd, be, I'd always been going back to Corvallis because it was also my mother's hometown for 90 years. Wow. You know, my dad had grown up in Eugene, but it was really our hometown. So I'd always been going back there. But when I started to look at the murder, I went down a lot several right. times a year. Uh, fortunately, the two original detectives and the man who was the district attorney were still living. So, you know, you can't, it's really hard to do an old case. It's very hard to write about a, yeah. a, a cold cr a case and, a, and an old crime. The police report per se was very short. It was maybe 20 pages. Did, were you able to read the whole thing? I though? was able to get it. Yeah. But there, it wasn't very lengthy. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, the, they'd sort of hit a roadblock in right. 1968 and, and stopped looking at the case. But then I found uh, a much younger detective who'd been a, a cold case detective oh. just just five years before I was looking at the case. And he'd taken another look at it. And so the book kind of ends on that note that he thought he was finally going to be able yes. to make an arrest. Yes. And there was a surprise in store as far as the, yeah. the person that was the, the best suspect. But one of the things I thought was most interesting uh, when I began to meet with um, classmates mm -hmm. that I knew and, and had never known is that my Corvallis, my hometown, was not necessarily the same Corvallis they grew up in. And, what do you mean? Well, that... Um, there was... Uh, there, were, there were classes. Yeah. There were no ethnic minorities. Yeah. That is true. But it's, it was a very extremely white town, even for a, a university town that attracts international students and faculty. But it was a very white town. But there were those of us, my father was at the university, and my parents were prominent in town. Right. Well, Dick was from the other side of the tracks, literally. Yeah. And there were people, you know, my best friends, though, were, you know, their parents were farmers. Mm -hmm. Their parents had the florist uh plural company in town. They were very working class, right. but there was a really uh, a, a distinction between, you know, kids with families with education ties and kids that didn't have that. The thing about Dick Kitchell was that he was friends with kids in all kinds of yeah, you, in the book, you talk about that. It's like everybody had a relationship with him or knew him, and yeah. he dated a couple of girls. Cheerleader, I he think, was one of them. He dated a cheerleader. Right. And, kind of a social uh, butterfly, even though he of his he was. home situation, right? And people really remembered him. And I looked back, and I had some uh, – I didn't go to the – we didn't go to the same grade schools, but we went to the same – in those days, it was a junior, junior high, high school, grade. Western View. <laughs> and uh, he's was in a couple of my classes. But he tended to take, especially in high school, he took a, you know, automotive shop and those kinds of things when a, a lot of the rest of us were in college preparatory classes. Um, but he had friends in every strata. He was a, 
you know, he'd been a really, and I remember it, he was a really sweet kid that I watched him turn into what we used to call a juvenile delinquent. Mm-hmm. You, I and think you said a JD a in the JD. book. A <laughs> JD. So l- that let's was talk about then. what it was he like when you first met him in middle school. What do you remember if you were to think of your first interaction with Dick? What was he like? Well, I knew he wasn't, um, you know, uh, from the community that I'd grown up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also my family was very involved in the church. Uh, and that's who my friend's parents were, even more than at the university at, at Oregon State. Right. Uh, and so that was the community I grew up in. But I I knew, I could see in, in junior high that um, the Dick was, you know, becoming a JD. I could see the kids he was hanging out with and, uh, you know, that's at the point, if we'd gone to grade school together, I'm sure we would have talked. But in junior high, when the differences are more apparent, it's very you, you start not. To, it, it's really click. Yeah. Yeah. But I found, you know, a great <laughs> number of, of boys who Dick had grown up with in Cub Scouts and playing Little League Baseball in the summer. And they still, you know, we're, uh, you know, 60 something year old years old and they still call him Dickie. Oh, that's cute. You know, it's been dead 50 years, 60 years, but mm-hmm. they call him Dickie because that's how they knew him and um kind of time capsuled that way. It, it is a real a real time capsule. It's interesting when you lose someone uh who everyone kind of remembers, you it's almost like everyone remembers a different year of their life when you were more bonded to them or a, a significant memory. So that, that's interesting. They, of course, go back to those early days. The first gathering I had when I went to Corvallis to, to work on the book was uh, to, there was just kind of an open call for anybody who wants to talk and, you know, meet and talk about Dick and, mm-hmm. and our senior year in high school. So we met at a, a friend's house, and there were probably about a dozen of us. And that's when I learned that my Corvallis wasn't necessarily theirs. I, I was kind of naive about this. Mm-hmm. You know, Dick went to drinking parties most every night at the homes of kids that were a little bit older, maybe college-aged. But also there were people sitting in the living room who said, I couldn't wait to get out of Corvallis. And I I didn't know that. I wasn't in that group of kids that that would have felt that way, Mm -hmm. or I didn't know. I just didn't know about it. Um, But he, you know, he actually died in, it was October 1967, so it's the beginning of our senior year. Mm -hmm. But that was a really pivotal year in America, which I touch on in the book, because 1968, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Uh, Robert Kennedy had just been in Corvallis campaigning for the primary, when Oregon's primary used to be more important than it is now. (laughs) And like four days before he was assassinated in Los Angeles. And a lot of you know, my fellow students had gone to hear. They'd gone. They'd gone to hear Nixon a few mm-hmm. weeks before. Uh, they, you know, the first time we'd ever marched uh, when when King was assassinated, uh, and then and then Robert Kennedy, you know, being killed. Uh, actually, on the night of our graduation. Oh wow! And a word I remember word just kind of spreading uh, throughout. We had a class of about six hundred. Wow, uh, that's students. a lot of darkness over one single year senior year class i mean that's well and that's the year things were really escalating in in vietnam right and it's the year that lyndon johnson decided not to run for re-election and he called the year the nightmare year 
because it was Vietnam, it was the Chicago riots at the time of the Democratic Convention in August, it was you know King's assassination. '68 was a, a really pivotal year in America, and I can't say I went into this book thinking about oh, there's a good hook for Dick's murder, but it became sort of obvious yeah. early on. That is that is a hook. There was a lot happening. And you know, that innocence that we grew up with in Corvallis, that began to go away yeah. in 1968. I can imagine. And it turned out that the case kind of wasn't ever solved, but they always had a suspect. Right. And they just couldn't make the arrest. And Very so, of course, we'd never known that because the newspaper coverage... And the reporter who is doing all the, co you know, is one of the characters in the books. There are a number of characters, mm -hmm. you know, Dick's parents, his father, his stepmother, his friends, the reporter for the Corvallis Gazette Times, the DA, the detectives, the boys standing on the dock who saw the body floating yeah. by on the Willamette River. Did you ever talk to them? Oh, yes. They're very much in the book. Yeah. And I went back. And that's, you know, you have to immerse yourself in a in a story, I yeah. think, to write to write a good book. Yeah, because you so, spent two years on this one, correct? At least on two Hotel years, Hawaii. yeah. Uh, many of my books are, are four years, but two years. And uh, so I went, you know, the, the boy who saw the body and called his father, mm -hmm. who was a retired L.A. detective, right. come down. And uh, so he and I, you know, we walked that trail. You we did. We walked, you know, we stood where the dock Does used to be. Does he remember it vividly? That day. Oh, very much. Yes, yeah. and he had photographs of oh, wow. not not that day, but of him on that dock. Right. And um, you know what I love about writing is is the research. So I I didn't know when I lived in Corvallis that that was uh, the Willamette River was considered the most polluted river mm -hmm. in I, North America. I love that you opened with that information in the book. <laughs> I have to say. People, well, I mean, we joke about it as Oregonians that it's, you know, not somewhere you, you don't want go to swim. swim. Yeah. But you're very clear in it about how bad it was and how that impacted oh his body. Yes. And I, I was like, oh, I'm going to like this book. Yeah, it really, <laughs> really takes a toll it really does. on a body. It's now, they did clean it up in the late 70s, early 80s. But also, uh, who knew that it was one of just two rivers that it runs a pill. It yep. runs north. Yeah. You know, I didn't know and that. And you have a... Bunch of trivia in the book. Well, <laughs> hopefully, including my yeah. favorite, which is a little off topic, is the actual shade of blue for Corvallis High School. Yes. Which you, is Columbia Blue. Columbia Blue. Did you know that before or did you research that for the book? I researched it, but I did, once I knew it, I, re I realized yeah, I remembered it. Yeah, I love that. You, yeah. I, I thought I'm going to yeah. put a poll in the alumni page cool. and see if anybody yeah. knows that because I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a great shade. Now, of blue. we used to have bears at Avery Park, and mm -hmm. you probably, that's after you it, were. It, I, yeah, here. it was before. For my time, I think, but I, I know it. I remember uh, yeah. reading about it. Yeah, and Seton's, which was the place to go mm -hmm. to see and be seen. You mentioned the, the Big O. Hang out. The yeah. Big O, which had the roller skating And then some stuff's hops. still there. McHenry Funeral Home is still yes. there. So I went to McHenry's. You did? Oh, yes. I, you know, I always say you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And it's because I went to McHenry's and they were kind enough to spend some time with me. They... They didn't have records per se, but they had note cards that somebody had made when Dick's father went in to make arrangements 
for the funeral. Wow. And they he showed me uh, the note cards that said what music was played. Wow. And they how, held on to him all those years. How much they did. How much they paid the organist. Um, uh, it, just the details like that. That's which, incredible. And the name of the organist. And did they and, do that, I'm assuming, because it was such a big case in town that they knew that it no, was something? I, or they just I think held it was on just routine. You know, in those everything. days, wow. obviously pre-computer by decades. Right. But let's, how do we, you know, in those days, they just had a, a Keep filing card, filing card system, probably under K for Kitchell. And it was still around. How interesting. So when you go looking, you you find things. Yeah. If you don't go looking, you don't, you don't know never what gonna, you're Never going to know missing. what you'll discover. So let's talk about after they found him in the river. Do you remember what that was like at school? Did, how did they announce it? I do. And I've always, uh, my memory for some reason fixates on curious events. I think you're in a like-minded yeah. group yes. of people. <laughs> yeah. What? And What's I, that like? <laughs> uh, thank you. I don't have to explain that. No. I remember they announced it on the on the. Uh, the PA system in the really? morning with the in the morning announcements. Whoa. Monday morning, so his body was found on a Saturday. It had been in the river about ten days, mm-hmm. and Monday morning they say, I don't know that they said Dick has been murdered, but they right. said Dick Kitchell been found and he was dead. And that's and, what we call in my business a lack of trauma informed care. Wow. That is, you and, know, and it's and very everyone different. already knows he's missing and wondering what's yes. happened to him. And I think and a great number of kids that information. had heard since Saturday. Right, it had spread. There right. was there was a you know, but to, have but it to announce it on, like so blunt, like yeah. oh. and you know, in uh, in those days, uh, there was no media circulating outside mm-hmm. the high school to try I'm to. I'm guessing grab you didn't have bites. like counselors, and no counselors there to help. No, no, no it. counselors. So how did people take the news? Oh was there tears? Were people huddled in groups? Like. What do you recall? I, th- I think there was sub-huddling. Of course, I didn't know his groups that would huddle. Right. And my groups didn't huddle. I assume my parents were great newspaper readers, mm-hmm. and my dad was in radio and television. So uh, I assume I kind of knew what was going on and, uh, and followed the case as much as you could right. with one daily newspaper. What I found is that his group of friends, you know, they'd been, they knew by Monday morning, they'd known since Saturday afternoon that his body had been found. And uh, what they told me, some kids wanted to talk about it and some didn't. Uh, I think uh, another thing that was really different about life then and then maybe now is how important neighborhoods were. Right. And if you live next door you know, to your best friend or not. So uh, I think there were, uh, clusters were really important. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, as I said, he'd gone to Harding and yeah. and uh, those, there was a close group of, of kids. They they spoke some. For the most part, everybody I wanted to interview did speak to me. Some of them had vivid memories. Some of them, you know, it'd been 50 years and some of them, uh kind of were less vivid. Um, occasionally there was a different point of view. Yeah. On Interesting. Yeah. Tell, uh, tell us about that. Well, so what the uh, detectives uh, learned right away as soon as his body was found is uh, that he'd been to a party in the last night that he was alive. And it was a party at a house uh, rented by 
some some older kids, you know, in their 20s that were actually also CHS former students, but now we're married and working and whatever. They provided alcohol and pot to these oh, kids, and the kids would pay them, mm-hmm. you know, something. Uh, of course, I, as I said, I was naive. I had no idea that right. every night you could go <laughs> somewhere in Corvallis. You're like, what's going on? That must have been eye-opening learning I, all of this. I think I was home doing my homework. <laughs> or, I was reading and writing. Or watching Dragnet. No, watching, <laughs> I was watching Perry Mason. Yeah, you know, uh, and I I do say in the book that I realized when I was working on the book that I did sneak into this corner of of the Safeway most every week to read True Detective magazine. Oh, well, my mother thought I was looking at seventeen. Oh, <laughs> scandal! I was reading the, the True Detective magazine, <laughs> but on the last night of his life, he'd been at a party, uh, and there had been a scuffle. He had arrived drunk. He couldn't drive his own car, which was one of his best belongings, favorite belongings, because he'd cracked it up a week or two before. Right. So somebody had given him a ride and dropped him off, and he'd already been drinking, and he picked a fight with somebody. And Dick was very small. It hadn't mattered in grade school or junior high, but he was quite a bit smaller. And um, Did he get picked on for that in high school? I I don't think so. Nobody seemed to think that he had been. He hadn't mm. been bullied by that because he was, you know, pretty tough right. guy. And he'd been in fist fights, and in fact, uh, you know, his father was a a suspect for a while right. because the police had been to the house to break up fights between he and his father. But on the night uh, of his death, he, uh, I think, was ordered to leave the house, and there was an older uh, boy there who was. 21, perhaps, had already been married and divorced, and he'd been in some trouble. But he offered to give a ride to three of the boys, including Dick. And uh, so they went to a couple of different homes to drop off these kids before their curfews, uh, which I think was 10 o'clock. And then his story was, and his name was Doug Hamblin, Mm. his story was that Dick wouldn't tell him where he lived. And Mm. Dick wanted to get out uh, downtown Corvallis on a street and instead of having him drive him across the Mary's River to uh, South Corvallis. And so Doug Hamblin said that uh, Dick, that he left Dick on this street corner. What they determined later is that um, they, the two of them had had a fist fight, and um, probably Doug Hamblin didn't really let him out on a downtown street, but maybe they were arguing in the car. But at some point... That car made its way over two blocks uh, south to the where the Mary's River meets the Willamette River. Yeah, you know, Dick hadn't just been in a fist fight; um, he'd been strangled. Mm. And um, of course, ten days passed. His father and stepmother didn't report him missing at first because he'd been known to kind of take off every once in a while. They'd go to the what we call the coast, which is the Oregon Beach, and you know, for a few days, they finally reported him missing, and um, and then his body was found. So ten days had passed. The detectives went to look at Doug Hamblin's car. They did not seize it. There wasn't the really the forensics tools that then mm-hmm. that there are now. They didn't see anything amiss. He admitted to them that he'd had to pull Dick out of the car. The passenger side door in the front. Uh, seat of the car was broken so he and dick had ended up somehow in the 
front seat after the other two boys had been let off. And uh, so he pulled him out of the car, and maybe that's when they got into their fight. Uh, the uh, medical examiner determined that Dick wasn't necessarily strangled with somebody's bare hands, but perhaps with a cloth or an elbow. Oh, you like know, with oh, like a chokehold. Yeah. In a chokehold, oh. yes. And didn't didn't somebody have his jacket? A jacket. Well, his he... jacket was missing. Okay. And the dad, when he, when the dad identified the body, he said, "Where's, where's the jacket?" Because Dick's tan suede jacket he just wore, you know, all the time. Finally, Doug Hamlet admitted he'd found a jacket oh. in the car. He didn't know whose jacket was. Mm-hmm. It was a child-sized jacket, mm-hmm. and he gave it away to somebody in his neighborhood. How convenient. So the police, you know, got that that back. But why would Dick have taken off his jacket? The detectives focused very early on on Doug Hamblin, who was the last, you know, he's the last person to right. see him alive. Admitting presumably. to having a physical altercation. Yes, he with admitted the car. to that. Uh, there were lots of rumors, as there always are in a murder case, you know, as if as if some a rival gang from Albany drove over <laughs> West Albany High. Yeah, I, bet. Right. I mean, really, <laughs> very likely. Yeah. Or that uh, I mean, I actually looked into this. Was Dick hitchhiking, perhaps, and was picked up or something? There'd been a um, sh- he wasn't sheriff then, but there was a man who was eventually a sheriff who got into trouble for having young boys over to his hot tub, and Ooh, so oh. was there a gay connection? You're googling that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave a, a number of people polygraphs, including Dick's father. And I found it interesting in the book you talk about traveling to Eugene for the polygraph. Yes. Was that common? Did they just have, was it expensive to have a polygraph? It was a pretty small police force in Corvallis. And Lane County, Eugene, would be second Mm. to Portland in population. And it had a sheriff's office. That's where the closest polygraph was. There was also one in Salem at the state police. But for some reason, they went to Eugene a a lot for the Mm -hmm. polygraphs. So Doug Hamblin took three, our best suspect, and he failed all of them. (laughs) Or they would say inconclusive, which is basically the same the same thing. So, you know, that was not that was a a strike against him, too. But there's not an, an awful lot more that kind of happened in the case. There were other friends of um, Dick's that um, that they gave polygraphs to. You know, his father and a stepbrother looked like kind of good suspects because there didn't seem to be any grieving. I felt a little judgment towards how they handled losing their child. Like, I, I, yeah. I think everybody's different, of course, but I, I got that impression that the town kind of frowned upon how he reacted. Well, uh, Dick's father ran a uh, shoe repair shop, mm-hmm. and it was right downtown. Everything was right by everything else, you yeah. know, the newspaper, the city hall, the police department, Safeway, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's all within a couple of square blocks. So especially in the first few weeks of the investigation, the detectives would drop in on the shoe repair shop that Ralph Kitchell ran mm-hmm. with Dick's stepmother. And he, you know, he was angry at the detectives. Right. He was angry about their questioning him. He was angry about being asked to take a polygraph. In fact, at first he and his wife said no. Right. It wasn't what we would think of as a grieving parent. And the more they found out about Dick's family, the, home, fam- life. the mm. home life, oh my gosh, that poor kid, he'd had, I think this was his third stepmother. Wow. 
Dick's mother had moved back to Olympia, Washington, and sometimes he was sent there, sent away to go to school, and then he'd be sent back to Corvallis. His father, you know, rented, they were moving every year or two between rental houses. And this marriage, his father and uh, Sylvia? His, Sylvia's Sylvia? stepmother, they'd just been married six months. Oh, wow. And she had a son who was uh, also uh, living in the house, and and Dick was an only child. And it was just a rather rough background right. and uh, really kind of sad. And so one of the first things the detectives had to find out is, did Dick ever get home? Right. And they were able to determine he had not. Something happened to him, you know, downtown. He was probably, it happened, you know, when he was downtown and it was put in the river, which was mm-hmm. very convenient to to where Doug Hamblin said he'd stopped the car. Um it was very interesting to interview the man who was the host of the party. Mm. He was married. They had a baby, an infant baby in the house. Yeah, how did they see that? Was that like a source of income for them? They just like having the kids around to keep them young? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's strange. I had quite a long interview with him. His wife had recently died, oh. and... Um, I did find out some things that I never told him about. About his wife? Yes. Uh oh. And I mean they had they both I mean there was there was some background that there was one one major thing that I didn't put in the book mm-hmm. because I didn't it didn't seem to matter to the story right. or the case. And it would be telling him something that I don't think he knew. Yeah. And uh so I don't remember ever doing that before. But remember, this is my hometown. Yeah, these are people that you these feel a people, connection with. Yeah. Th- with that alone, I can imagine. I think that's, I mean, that's great of you, first of all, to not take down how he sees her, I'm sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I no, mean, I can only I, imagine where yeah. you're going with and this. you don't but. want to damage that inherent trust. Right. I was like, yeah, hey, you're a, a neighbor of sorts, and, maybe, and I'm yeah. from here. And maybe and so it wasn't true. This, right? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's the other that's thing. That was something and I so couldn't. so to add it to be salacious just yes. for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah. It that was something sense. I couldn't. I couldn't really verify. Right. Yeah. So I wouldn't use something that was that was salacious and couldn't be verified. But Doug Hamblin, who'd been married three or four times, one of his ex-wives, well, two of them were extremely forthcoming with mm. me about, and they would tell me, you know, he always said he'd been. You know, a suspect in a murder, but he'd never talk about he what didn't. really happened. He and, didn't. And we still no. went ahead with marrying him? Yes. Oh, boy. Well, when does that come up for him? His I, I third date? Did, Is I that think it didn't a come fourth up date till, conversation? I think it came up at the one-year anniversary. <laughs> right. <laughs> or something. By the way. By the way, I, I might hear this about you. me around town. <laughs> I think more than with a lot of cases where you've got an extensive police report, and maybe the police are even forthcoming with you, and you know, the family members. And this is, I mean, it's just kind of was very much in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And I I pinned down what I could. And, but I actually, I like to read stories like that where, you know, where you don't know everything. I, I mean, it was a fantastic book. I will say that first and foremost, but I agree. I, there are a lot of things you kind of piece yourself together. I mean, uh, we know how the story ends. I've already told the listeners by now, but you get to that end and you you know who did it and you're left with like a oh how frustrating yeah. didn't go to jail for it but at the same yeah. time i i get the impression you wrote this as closure 
for everyone. I mean, did, is there something in that? Is that is that part of you write it to say justice for Dick and I hope everyone kind of... Well, I think it was perceived like that. Okay. That isn't my... I thought it was a good story. Okay. I wasn't. I have to admit, I was not looking for justice or... Right. I, I just thought it was a, an intriguing story. And, um, but it's interesting what the classmates brought to it. Right. That for them, for a lot of them, I think it was a kind of, I don't particularly personally like the word closure. I think the media uses it a lot. Okay. I've had tragedies in my life and I know there is no such thing. Yeah. You know, there's before management, I guess. Before and after. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, hopefully you learn to live with. That's something that it's happened. interesting because in the description of your book, there's a little bit of talk about how this impacted the town and how the town changed from it. And what is your takeaway on that? How, after speaking to all these people, how do you think this impacted their lives and as a community? Well, it was uh, there had not been any murders in Kerbalis, and I was able to look at that. It was a, it was a very rare mm-hmm. uh, incident, and I think it. Uh, kind of woke the town up. It's not um, as idyllic as you think. It was not as idyllic as as most of us thought. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the whole other aspect that I really enjoyed writing about in this book is that is that not only was it 1968, which is a pivotal year, but but you know we'd grown up. We were the 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 kids in the 50s that were duck and cover during the Cold mm-hmm. War. You know, there was an Air Force base near us that was a prime target for Russia. Uh, it was 10 miles out of Kravalas. Wow. My family had friends that built a bomb shelter, and we went to see it one Christmas when we were <laughs> at their house for dessert. They led us, you know, down to the bomb right, shelter. Kids, bomb gather shelter. around. So, see, I never forget. Yeah. Uh, well, that is, that sounds like a memorable Christmas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, how are they going to? But there are all these shelves of cans. And what are they going to do? Crank, use a make sure. You know, what if your hand crank? Can opener and goes bad. And they do bad. go bad after a while. Oh, I had one go bad at Christmas <laughs> yeah. when I was cooking. You get some botulism from yeah. that. How am I going to open my clams? I have a question going back to you saying that murder being so rare, you know, small town, lots of farmers, but that this case was also not necessarily dismissed, but a short police report and in a way, you they know, just forgotten. Well, or, yeah, was it an ability thing or the fact that this is just an older teenager male, so who track. really cares? Mm. He's this poor kid who's 18. I'm yeah. sorry, how old was he? Was he 17? He was 17. Yeah, so a 17-year-old male. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, today it'd be much more, yeah, like, right. so what? what is this Did matter? you have a sense of that, that it was kind of well, dismissed? Well, his classmates who I interviewed very much felt like this case had been abandoned mm. because he was from the other side of the tracks. Okay. And they literally told me if his parents had been prominent, this would have been solved. So more socioeconomic. So it was than very socioeconomic. Now I I spent, you know, a lot of time with the DA and the detectives on this. And I, you know, they were fifty years later, they were completely earnest about the lengths they went to. And Class did not matter to them. It didn't matter, and oh, and good. I I put it to them. You know, lots of lots of people felt this was this didn't go anywhere because uh, of who you know the Kitchells were, mm-hmm. and they said absolutely not. And and uh, you know from what I learned, I I believe them. It was not because it was what a, if they couldn't make an arrest, 
it wasn't like today where that car would have been seized right. and within, within yeah. an hour. And, that may, and have, that may have solved it alone. That c- probably could have. I think that that could have because we don't know if there were blood. Sp- he had 10 days to clean up, clean up the car. Yep. And uh, they didn't have the kind of testing for blood spatters that, that we have now. Um, his, you know, he'd given away the coat and they got the coat back, but maybe maybe that would have mm-hmm. had some some evidence. So I think it's really a part of a story is how did we investigate murders in 1967-68 compared to today? Right. right. They, that they did their best with the tools they had. They did their best and there just simply weren't very many tools. So I've written a lot about, you know, case, no body cases mm-hmm. with, um, it's very hard to make an arrest mm-hmm. if if they haven't found a body. But um, but in this case, they had the body and they presumed that it was Doug Hamblin. But um, but the and the the detectives, they they went every day they'd go hound the DA because you know it's the DA's decision. Right. Mm-hmm. Can we will we make a successful case? Will we get a prosecution? That's what matters to DAs. Yeah. Today and then. Yeah. That hasn't changed. Is Are we going to win? Is the case strong enough? Is the case strong enough? Um, so fast forward to our cold case detective, uh, Tyson Poole, who's now uh, on the police force in Bend, Oregon, and he was assigned to look at the case uh, 10 years ago or so, and he thought he could arrest Doug Hamblin, mm-hmm. um, and then discovered that he just died. Yeah. He just had a heart attack on his front porch and and died. And even then, Tyson Poole wanted to take it to the, the current DA um, to have a classification of, mm. you know, and to well, to prosecute it. Acknowledge it. it. And, acknowledge it. it. Yeah, yeah. and they just said it, you know, it's too late and it doesn't matter. Mm. So there's a designation of uh, that a case is closed by the death of the best suspect. And so that's that's where it stands. Did you get a sense when talking to that detective having worked on the cold case and that at that point when the suspect seems pretty blatant, is it really just a matter at that point of gathering as much evidence that you possibly can towards that person? Or was he still looking at every option possible? Did he give you any sense of that? Well, he was, he was, he also focused very much on Doug Hamblin and, uh, he he felt there was enough there to arrest him, and he was very candid with me. Uh, you know, I mean, police officers often aren't with right. with an author, but here's a detective who told me in 2015, 2017, that the police in 1968 had dropped the ball. Yeah, mm. that they had not pursued it like they could have. That he really thinks they could have made an arrest, and I'm sure I put that to them when I was talking yeah. to them and there was no great animosity but but to have the the cold case detectives say they forgot it and I imagine that happens a lot with these towns that don't have murder you don't know what you're doing it's a learning curve for everyone mm-hmm. it was just unfortunate and I hope that's changed for people but I definitely get that not impression. because there are more murders no just, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you can prepare for things exactly. that might not happen yeah <laughs> Tools and technology, definitely. And experience. Mm -hmm. Because now, I mean, there there have been dozens of murders in Corvallis since then. 
And, Unfortunately, that uh, is true. And they, they have tools that they, they didn't have then. It was a quite an experience for me um, because, of course, I'd been in my own little niche in high school. I was a journalism student and sometimes in band. And, and I got to know, you know, kids that I had not known. Right. Because it was a class of more than 600. And... Um, and a lot of them become really good friends. I was going to ask you oh, that. Have you continued the relationship? Oh, oh my gosh, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's just wonderful. And you know, there's there's nothing. So so I timed this uh, very deliberately. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, that we had our 50th high school reunion the, the week the book came out. Oh, <laughs> good so on I, you. I good spoke publicity. In, <laughs> I spoke in Corvallis at the libraries, mm-hmm. you know, standing room only and the newspaper wow. did stories and and so it wasn't officially part of the reunion but it was i timed it mm-hmm. so um it was a really interesting experience for me to uh, learn a lot about my hometown yeah yeah well thank you for sharing that with us i really did enjoy the book and i have to say if this story interests you Grab that book because there is so much detail. You're going to feel like you were living there at that time, I swear. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to back up one sure. other thing you mentioned. I hope, my my hope was that it's it's kind of a universal story. It's mm-hmm. not just, you know, it's part memoir, part true crime. It's about my hometown. But it could be anybody's. Anybody's hometown. Anybody's yeah. hometown. And also that time period. You know, it's very, it's like a time capsule, I think, of going back and seeing all of those political events that happened and uh, the story of this poor boy that this happened to, I think it, you can really immerse yourself in what that might've been like in that book. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks for having me. Of course. Sitting down and talking to Rebecca was illuminating. She wrote this book, which yes, is the story of the unsolved murder of Dick Kitchell, but it's also the story of a town and how it functioned in the time of trauma. This was a time when kids became adults and started to see a clear division in classes. When media began writing about Dick's death, they made it a point to talk about how he was caught up with the police, that he had drunk driving charges, that he was violent, that his family was dysfunctional. One student, Linda Bigham, wrote a letter to the newspaper to express her thoughts that Dick's case was treated differently in the media than it would have if it had been her or another classmate. Dick's character was apparently being questioned because he had been in fights and trouble with the police, and perhaps had he been wealthier or from a more prominent family, maybe his death would have been treated differently. She was able to get multiple classmates to sign this letter as well. So they they really got it. Mm-hmm. They got that people were being treated differently. Yes, he was white, because most of that town was, right. but he was from Southtown. Um, so they, they did. And he's just a troubled young man and right. who really cares? Like, let's blame the victim is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And and they did a, a page in the yearbook about him and everything, but I don't think they got to say what they had ultimately wanted to say. Even in recent years, the class of 1968 reflects on this case as traumatic and defining. People close to Dick remember him as Dickie, a sweet kid from their past. To Rebecca, this was the story of how she lived in an almost different world from the kids around her, not knowing until adulthood the many differences in teenagers' lives that existed there in her small town, in my small town. I wanted to uncover this case because it's a perfect example of how a young life in a small town may never get justice, but they don't have to be forgotten. Thank you.
So my next TikTok, I think, is going to be a music video with him playing the love interest. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> this laugh. I've been thinking about it for two days. And it'll be funny. You haven't laughed in a while. Huh? I need to, like, dress him up, though. I got to have. So I'm trying to. It's like, do I do, like, an Adele style or do I do something, like, funnier, like Mariah Carey? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. Oh, can't wait to see. <laughs> I'm a little worried for you. Why? It's fun. I just like to feel pretty and look pretty and feel confident and be confident. Okay, Tyra Banks. Great. I wear makeup for me. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I've watched a lot of TikTok videos about I do my makeup for me. Oh, boy. I know. What a time to be alive. You know? Yeah, fake yeah. bad boy. Yeah, yeah. that was totally That's, my yeah. thing yeah, when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, sizzler yeah, cook. Little... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that little shaven spot. <clears throat> People are doing that now. That's a thing. Oh, God. I know. I'm, I What was I watching? What? Um, TikTok? I almost had No. <laughs> uh, the Only? challenge on MTV. Uh, all the guys yeah. are doing that again. It's Ew. like, what are we in? The 90s? I mean, I might as well because the side is going bald. Yeah, let's, is it? Let's do it. Let's be it's cool. Where I sleep. I cut my eyebrows a little too That's short right to me there. Too. I sleep on top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm balding now. Well, I'm not balding. I'm bald. <laughs> my dad accidentally shaved my eyebrows Did when I was little. What? Accidentally? How yeah. does that happen accidentally? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> like once a week, he would. we had like father-daughter bonding because he got up really early and I did too. And he would trim my bangs with his beard trimmer. And he just he, went... <laughs> and he would just go across, but he... <laughs> So he did it, and then we went to a family friend's house. We're hanging out, and my mom, across the room that night, looked at me. She goes, what in the hell did you do to your eyebrows? And I was like, what? Because I was probably only like seven or eight, and he had there was just big squares missing. Oh, my God. From where he had missed. The so just combs. went. The teeth. <laughs> that is amazing. He wasn't allowed to trim my bangs anymore. Okay, that's good. Especially when you farted. You were the star of the show. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you farted. You can, you can You're gaping just asshole. barely hear it too. I turned it way up, and you <laughs> could hear it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I couldn't hear it. Yeah, just the tiniest noise. That's so good. And it was so. so good. I literally almost said jelly beans. Yeah. Like oh that's... yeah, it was. Yeah. Jelly and beans. then you said, and it freaked me out because I almost because it's. Oh and when you god. said yeah. that, all I could think of was raisinets. Oh. That makes sense though. It's the same size. Yeah. It's more appropriate. And poopier looking. Poopier. Yeah. Rabbit poopies. <laughs> I wish. <clears throat> you do look delicious, though. Thank you. But I don't taste delicious. You taste like human skin. Oh. Ooh, not my favorite flavor. <laughs> I don't want to know what kind of role playing you guys are doing. Okay? We do. We play cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bite this time. I've got a meeting tomorrow. I like your little pile of cookies over there. Thank you. Yeah, it's very <laughs> cute. You them off like <laughs> <Vanna> White. <laughs> it's a very nice presentation. One of my favorite TikToks is so stupid. Oh, I'm my sorry. God. Sorry, I'm trying to make prolapse happen. I can give you some tips. <laughs> oh. Yours? You have a, do you have? No. It's tight as a drum, baby. <laughs> Never been kissed. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. <laughs> Do we have a butt looker in our face? Robin? No. Butt looker in our face. Or maybe. <clears throat> oh, no. 
have a fruit oh, in my throat. Heavens. <laughs> or maybe they don't recall any of that and they just remember it. No, as you a- have to take the Ted Bundy one again oh, because that's where you got all garbly. Ted Bundy. He cruised through my hometown. Should we do an old voice episode where we just talk like that? Yeah. Okay. I'm kidding. This is the story of Ted Bundy. Oh my God. A very bad boy. Well, you took it a different way. Anyway, save that for Jeopardy. <laughs> well, that's a big sign. Welcome to Lynn County, grassy oh, capital of that's the Albany. world. Oh, nice try. Should though. I cut that out? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Go right ahead. <clears throat> where we have a conversation. Fast forward to forty-five twenty-eight, where you will hear a heated debate. <laughs> Which county is the grassy capital of the world? Where do the borders lie? Is it Albany or is it Corral? And are they allowed to have a septic tank in that county? We don't know. We'll find out. She's a New York best time selling author. Mm. Nope. No. <laughs> what did I say? New York New best, best times? I saw a really funny TikTok. Can I just. Oh my God. So on a roll, and then, yep, that's your style, baby. That's my total style. My style's a little bit good, and then. <laughs> <laughs> I like lunch. Mm-hmm.